We're going to study God's Word together, so if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2, this glorious, amazing text. If you're familiar with Ephesians, then this will be a very familiar passage, but I hope it's not uh, familiar in a way that leaves us sleepy to the glorious truth that's here. So if you would follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too, all, previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were, by nature, children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So stories are a huge part of our lives. There's, there's not a culture on earth where the people in that culture don't love to tell stories. It's been done for, for, throughout time in every civilization of humanity. Um, we love stories. Earlier this part of the week, we had a normal night that turned into something not so normal. So uh, Paula and I went to bed late at night, which there's nothing abnormal about that. That's typical for us. Uh, so went to bed late at night got in our bed, turn our lamps on on either side of the bed. She gets out her book. I get out my book. This is kind of nightly routine. That's all normal. Um, but we weren't going to be getting too much reading done that night because on this particular night earlier this week, our 15-year-old daughter, Ellie, was sitting on the bed with us. And it's 11 o'clock, and she's gearing up. She... <laughs> She's gearing up for what my dad used to call a season of fellowship, which just for him, that just meant a time of talking that might never end. And she just, she was ready to go. She wanted to talk about life, talk about everything. And that's, that's where she was. And um, I'm fading fast at that point of the evening. And so I made a desperation move. And I said, Ellie, do you remember years ago when you were really little and when you found yourself in our bed late at night we would tell you stories. What if, what if we flipped the script? What if you just told us a story? So, so how about this? I'm going to turn over and I'm going to close my eyes and then you're going to tell me, you're going to make up a story. And, um, and, and she, she took the bait. Uh, I mean, she actually did it. It worked. And so I rolled over. I had permission now, I licensed to roll over on my side and close my eyes. And, and, and then I heard her say, once upon a time, and I thought, literally in that moment, she said, once upon a time, and I thought, Matt, you genius. I figured out right how to get around this, or maybe I wasn't a genius, because a few moments later, as the story went on, this story became increasingly 
disturbing. This was less Pocahontas and more criminal minds. This was a deeply disturbing story. And so two minutes into this story, I'm like, she is messing with me. I am not going to sleep. And, and so with my eyes still closed, I just said out loud, I said, Ellie, this story is just the worst. And because I'm not going to be able to to think about anything except, is this person about to die? Are they about to be eaten right now? So in fairness, let me just back up and say this. Um, In fairness to Ellie, the last time she was in our bed late at night in this kind of way and we were telling her story, she's like four years old. So I don't know why, for some reason, I had an expectation that the stories she told to us as a 15-year-old were going to sound like the ones we told to her when she was four years old. But I guess my expectations, given my response, I guess my expectations was, were this, that, that I was going to roll over and close my eyes, and she was going to say, once upon a time, a girl had the greatest parents on earth. And even late at night, even when it was 11 o'clock at night, they would put their books down just to talk with her and listen to her and connect with her and be cool and funny because that's what they were and they were also wise and beautiful. And I'm just expecting that to be the story for some reason. In other words, the story that I expected and the story I got were two very different stories. Well, Paul is telling a story and in Ephesians, he's getting at what is the story of the Christian life? Here's the reality. As Christians, we all have a story. Let me just briefly tell you a couple stories that I know. Uh, I've told you some of my story over the past several years. I have a friend who is a pastor in, um, in D.C. And as a child, he was, he was very bright, even from an early age. Before 10 years old, he was reading the Harvard Classics. He was reading the World Book Encyclopedia on his own with no outside motivation, just internal desire to learn. Uh, he ended up graduating magna cum laude from Duke University. He got a Ph.D. from Cambridge, double master's degrees. I mean, just, just a intellectual powerhouse as he came into college he was um he was a self-described skeptic with regard to christianity he did not believe in jesus did not believe in god but he said he came to a point of realizing and coming to the idea that that agnosticism he believed was was the more intellectually honest and sophisticated ideology than than card carrying atheism and he said as a lover of history I realized that when I read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I read it like an atheist. I read it constantly refuting the idea of miracle, constantly pushing back. And he said, I realized I hadn't really read the gospels as an agnostic. I hadn't read it going in and taking it on its own terms because I don't know that there's not a God. I don't know that there is one. I haven't seen any proof, but I don't know that there's not one. And so I'm going to read these gospel accounts as though on their own terms, and he read it as a historian. And more and more, over time, by the time he was finished with the Gospels, he was convinced Jesus had to be God. Jesus was the most compelling being who ever lived, human who ever lived, and he was God, and he did live that life, and he did die on the cross, and he did rise again. And that, after that moment, the whole Bible was opened up to him, and his life was forever changed. Here's another story closer to home. My, my own wife, Paula, uh, who was in that video we watched at the, the top of our worship time. She was cutting our son Will's hair. My, my wife, Paula, she grew up in a Catholic uh, setting, which is 
basically a description of almost everybody in South Louisiana. New Orleans is a high Roman Catholic influence. So she grew up in that culture. It's a very cultural uh, experience. Um, but then uh, the Lord got a hold of, of her mom. And, and then the Lord saved her dad as well and brought him to faith. And her mom was on fire for Jesus and just saw so many new and glorious things in his word. And she was telling Paula about it. And she was sharing the gospel with, with uh, Paula, her daughter. And, and she's inviting her to church and all this stuff. And, um, and Paula was kind of creeped out by it. And she wasn't having any of it. And so that continued on until my wife... Paula uh, lost her older brother, Keith, to a tragic car accident. He was only 24 years old, and Keith was her world. And um, I never met Keith, but my, my son, William, looks a lot like his uncle Keith. And that was devastating to Paula. And she went into college and uh, ended up getting into a, a really broken relationship uh, an oppressive relationship and it wasn't healthy. And, but all the while, it, it was like the Lord, she would tell you now, it was like the Lord was chasing her down, but she was running and she felt like he was calling her back, but she was just running further and further. And, and then one night, her mom invited her again for the hundredth time to come to church. But this time she said, come to church. There's this college group from Dallas, music group, and they're going to come and sing and do some things. So you should come tonight. And Paula said, I found myself saying, yes. Let me just put in parentheses. I was in that college group from Dallas, Texas. We didn't meet that night. That's another story. I'm not going to tell you that story right now. But, and the Lord didn't save her that night. She didn't come to saving faith that evening. But the Lord began drawing her in earnest at that point. And six months or so later on, she was weary of running from God and she experienced God's grace and the truth came home to her heart and her life was forever changed. And she said, I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my days. And that's one of my favorite stories, the power of God to change a life. Every Christian has a story. And for all the amazing variation of your story and my story and the stories that fill this room when we're gathering, there are common threads to every Christian story. Ephesians 2, if you will, is God saying, let me tell you a story. And if you said, which one? He says, your story. I'm going to tell you your story. In a sense, God says, I'm going to tell you our story, how this whole thing began. And it develops in three chapters. The first one is this, who I was, who I was. This chapter of Ephesians really is in storytelling mode, right? It, Paul uses those words you see in verse one, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's opening up the story of humanity, the story of these believers in Ephesus. These opening words, though, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, really describes the whole human situation. The entire human family is dead in trespasses and sins. After the fall of Adam and Eve, we come into this world with a heart that's bent away from God. We don't want him. We don't want to serve him, to worship him, to live for him. We are dead in trespasses and sins in which, you see those words, dead in trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived. There's a kind of verbal irony. So are we dead or are we alive? You previously lived, but you were dead. 
which is to say that there was a sense in which we were dead. We were dead fundamentally in our orientation to God. We were cold toward him. We were unresponsive to him. And yet there was a sense in which we were very much alive. Alive to what? He says, you were alive according to the ways of the world. That's what you were alive to, the ways of the world. And when Paul speaks of the ways of the world, that verbiage that he uses, he doesn't just mean the kinds of things that good religious people never do, the ways of that, that nasty old world out there. He, he's talking about something much broader, a bigger problem in the world. There, there's more than one way to reject God. There's more than one way to reject God. You can reject God by chasing pleasure, or you can reject God by choosing religion. Those are two alternate ways of uh, both arriving at the same dead-end street, of being dead to God. There are lots of people in our world today. There are lots of people in our city today who are dead to God but active in religion, dead to God but active in church, dead to God but believe themselves to be basically good people, right? Some of... Some religion proves that we know God, proves that we're accepted by God uh, by praying five times a day. Some religions prove that they know God and are accepted by God by riding bikes through neighborhoods and evangelizing. Other religions prove that they know God and are accepted by God by walking an aisle and praying a prayer. But at the end of the day, any orientation, anyone who relies on his or her religious activity to be accepted by God has not yet discovered the truth of Ephesians chapter two, has not yet discovered who God is and why he came. What did Jesus say? He said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinful. I didn't come for the the well. I came for the sick. You count up the people. You study through, read through the gospels like my friend did years ago. And count up the people who missed salvation when he was standing right in front of them. And you're looking at the people who are the most religious people of their day. And you know what story they didn't want to hear? They didn't want to hear Jesus say, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of of the world. When Jesus started telling that story, they kept their eyes closed and they said, Jesus, this story is awful. I don't like where this story is going. Tell us another one. Tell, tell us the one about us. Tell us the one where we talk about what we brought to the party. Tell us the one where it talks about all the sweat we have in the game of religion. That was the emphasis they had. Ephesians 2 tells us the story. It's maybe not the story we expected, maybe not even the story that we wanted, but it's the true and honest story. It's an unflattering story about who we are, about the deepest problem in humanity and the deepest problem in you and me. And what is the deepest problem? Sin. We have sinned against a holy God. He gives us life and breath and everything. We don't come into this world saying, who do I thank for the sunset that I saw yesterday? Who who do I thank for the breath that I'm breathing right now? We don't come with a God orientation. We come dead to God. Every worldview says, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. 
here's what's wrong with the world, right? And whatever is labeled by a given ideology or a given worldview, whatever is labeled the ultimate problem tells you what kind of Messiah we're waiting for. It tells you what kind of savior we're supposed to look for. So a, fundamentally our problem is political. Well, then we're looking for a politician, Messiah. We're looking for a political savior. Uh, you can be thin and self-confident is the the deepest problem. Well, now we're looking for an exercise program or a regiment or a diet program, right? That's the savior. That becomes the functional go-to Messiah. Friends, Christianity, this is the story of the world. Ephesians chapter two, Christianity points to a problem that is as deep as death. And then it gets us looking for a savior who can raise the dead. Poverty alleviation programs can't raise the dead. Education reform can't raise the dead. Policy change can't raise the dead. Jesus can raise the dead. And death is our problem. Sin is our problem. Jesus can forgive sins. He can address, he can get to the, the core issue that creates every, every uh, aspect, every vestige of misery in this world is related to sin. Even, you know, this, this, this week was tough, right? There was hard news for us to process this week all over our screen. We're seeing the young man, Ahmaud Arbery, who was gunned down in the street by two white men. They saw him running down the street and they thought that probably looked suspicious and they loaded their weapons and jumped in a pickup truck and chased after him and killed him in the street. And for some reason, between February 23rd when it happened and when the, release, the video was released, apparently almost nothing was getting done. In, realms, in the realm of justice. The ball didn't seem to be bouncing in the direction of justice for all of that time. And I'm going to talk more about that issue next week because Ephesians chapter 2 drills into some areas where the church is supposed to lead the way in repenting and the church is supposed to lead the way in lamenting. And here's the point. Nobody watches the video that some of us saw this past weekend of this young man being shot and turns around and thinks to themselves, what a wonderful world. No, no, we wake up when we watch stuff like that. We realize there is evil in this world. We wake up to the kinds of things Ephesians 2 is saying and it starts clicking, right? Because Ephesians 2 says something's wrong with us. Something is wrong with us and we're infected from birth and the condition is terminal and we can fight against this or that symptom, but the demon is deeper down. We can educate the community. We can pursue policy change and by all means, let's do it. But the demon seems deeper down. There's a fundamental darkness in this world and in our own human hearts that is only addressed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A musician, poet, of the late 20th century put it this way. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws. Broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Broken hands on broken plows, broken treaties, broken vows. Broken pipes, broken tools, people bending, broken rules. The name of the song, everything is broken. It resonates with Ephesians chapter 2. You, all of you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
you were following the dictates of your slave master, Satan, living according to the ways of the world, chasing after these things that were drinking what was poisoning you. Verse one to three, though, is meant to not just get the church thinking about what's going on out there in that nasty old world, right, without reflecting honestly on the darkness that's within. Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3, wants to create and foster a sense of humility in the church, among God's people, a sense of compassion. I, I hope we know this. I'm going to say it personally. I know where my life was going outside of Jesus. I, I know to this day, I know I am not a spiritual giant. I am not invincible. We are not the most faithful church in the world. I am not the most gallant and courageous Christian in this church. I'm not the best Christian in my house. Some self-reflection, some modesty, some humility. I know, I hope you know, Christian, sin is always crouching at the door. The sin that Hebrews 12 says so easily entangles us. It could have us tomorrow. It, could, it wants to take me prisoner again. And that's so sobering. So sobering. The seeds, Robert Murray McShane, the great pastor, late pastor, said, the seeds of all sins are in my heart and perhaps all the more dangerously that I do not see them. You think about your life. You think about your life. You've, you've broken promises, haven't you? These are words I'll never say. And then you went and said them. These are lines I'll never cross until you went and crossed them. Can there be some sense of humility that's created by this gospel, right? Hope, what hope is there for people like us? Here's my story. Dead in trespasses and sins, yet very much alive in this world, thinking I was free when I was actually a slave of sin. That's my story. If you're a believer in Christ, that was your story. And that's how the story would have continued to this day in my life. That story would have continued were it not for the two best words in this letter. But God. Verse four, but God. Our story moves from this is who I was to this is what God did. This is what God did. Follow along with me. Verse four. But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead and trespasses, you're saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then he sums it up. Here's the story for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. If you are a Christian today, it is not because you figured out a good deal when you saw it coming. It is not because you turned over a new leaf. This is how it went down. You were busy dying and God raised you up and gave you life. That, that's the gospel. It's resurrection. 
It is not cosmetic surgery. It's resurrection. You were busy. I was busy. We were busy quenching our thirst for worldly pleasure. Alternately, we were busy propping up our plans with our self-made God's assistance. That's religion. That's what we were busy doing when God said, you know what? Enough. Tired of watching you hit the self-destruct button. I'm breaking in. I'm giving you life. You've been dead to me up until now. No more. Starting today, you have a pulse. And suddenly, boop, boop. Now you're alive to God. Who knows where it came from, but you're alive to God. That's what Augustine, the great theologian in the fourth century, he said, you shouted, you called and shouted and burst my deafness. You shattered my blindness. You breathed and I drew in my breath and panted for you. New life. Theological term for it is regeneration. New life. Resurrection. Friends, there is no greater miracle in the universe than when someone goes from dead in sin to alive to God. This should never get old for us. This should explain the way we sing, why we sing the way we sing. See, uh, Everett Koop was the most famous doctor in America from 1982 to 89 because he was the U.S. Surgeon General in the Reagan administration during those years. He was a brilliant man. He didn't believe in God. He said, I started going to church in, in Philadelphia because he said my wife was badgering me and it was just easier just to go than to not go. And she was badgering me about it. And he, these are his words. I intellectually rejected all the tenets of Christianity when I started. I don't know when in that year it happened, but one year later, I embraced everything. I was dead to God. I didn't care. I went just because she was badgering me. And now I believe it all. And I want to follow Jesus. What, what motivated God to do this? Why would he do this? God being rich in mercy because of his great love. That's the explanation for why you, Christian, are alive now and not still dead to God. Rich in mercy. If the story of our lives were reduced to one word, that word is mercy. I could tell the whole of my Christian story in three words. I received mercy. I didn't deserve it. That's what mercy means. I didn't deserve it, but I got it. I didn't deserve mercy, but that's what I came away with. I got mercy. The Apostle Paul, he hits full stride in verse 4 through 7 as he tells every Christian, this is your story. Almighty God who loved you before the foundation of the world, pulled you out of the grave, broke the chains of guilt and shame, tore up your employment contract in Satan's chain gang and said, welcome to life. Freedom is waiting. Grace is here. Your home is heaven. And here's what I've got lined up for you in your future. I think you're going to like it. Verse seven, the immeasurable riches of my kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. That's what's coming. How does that sound? Is, is this your story? Has God the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and convinced you of the unflattering but honest truth about yourself that you are dead in trespasses 
and sins. And if you're seeing that now for the very first time and grappling with your need for a savior for the very first time this morning, I think I can tell you why. Because God intends to change your story today. If you repent and believe, if you turn from what you were trusting in a moment ago, living your life for yourself, and you run to the one and only savior of the world who lived and died and took your sins on, on the cross and rose again to give you new life. And what happens the moment you believe? The moment you believe, you get to say and tell this story to people around you. This is who I was. But this is what God did. I was dead. He sent a savior and I got mercy. That becomes your story now. This is in your notes for us to hold on to. If your Christianity feels like bare knuckle resolution rather than amazing grace, your Jesus is too small. <laughs> I'll say that again. If your Christianity feels like bare knuckle resolution rather than amazing grace, your Jesus is too small. You might want a refund, right? Your cup was mislabeled and you ended up with decaf. I'm so sorry, but there's a better message. There's a better truth, right? So how, how do we get out of that, right? How do we put that cup down and pick up the right one, the one that wakes you up? Well, let's, let's start talking about the real story. Let's talk about the real Jesus who is both the author and the finisher of our salvation. Let's, let's look at the resume of the gospel right here in Ephesians chapter two. It's flashing the gospel's resume. What's the resume include? Resurrection, liberation, new creation, and no condemnation. That's quite a resume. Resurrection is what the gospel does. Liberation, freedom from slavery to Satan new creation in Christ Jesus and no condemnation. Let's rehearse that story that marches you through chapter one, what I was, to chapter two, what God did, and finally to chapter three, who I am, who I am now. I have a, a friend here at Brook Hills and he is, uh, he's like a master woodworker. He's a, he's a craftsman and he, he's got this project underway right now and he's, showing it to his friends via Instagram and other ways. And he's working on building this amazing door. He saw it somewhere, but uh, either couldn't afford it or wasn't able to buy it. And he thought, I'm going to take a picture and then I'm going to try to build this thing. And this door that he's building is absolutely s splendid. It is an unbelievably beautiful piece of door, furniture, whatever you call it. Anyway, this door is not just function. I mean, this is the kind of door where you look at this thing and you can write poetry in Latin. It, it affects you. It turns you into an artist. It is aesthetically pleasing. And he walks you through, my friend walks you through the stages of this project. He shows you the timber that's stacked up that he purchased for the job. And then you see it after it's been milled and he rubs his hand across it and you see the texture of it. And then he begins binding some of the wood together. And he's taking you through each stage of this project from stack of wood to work of art. And you see it moving all the way along that line, stack of wood to work of art. And meanwhile, while I'm watching this whole thing, I'm studying Ephesians chapter two. And what are we called as Christians in verse 10? We are his workmanship. Whose workmanship? God's workmanship. God isn't stacking timber in the church. He's making something beautiful. That's why our focus as a church, we don't want our focus to be numerical growth above all things. 
God isn't stacking timber. What's most important is what kind of people is he making under the gospel? Is that the kind of church? Is there deep health, deep growth, true beauty coming forth as God works on us? Ray Ortland, our friend in Nashville, he tells a story of an African mother whose, whose child asks her, what is God doing all day long? And the African mother answered and said, mending broken things. It's what God's doing all day long. You know, sometimes as Christians, we, we fail to understand our identity in Christ. We think God looks at our lives and he rolls his eyes. We think God's general disposition and feeling toward us is a kind of low-grade embarrassment. Ephesians 2 wants to give us a completely different story. Look, verse 9 does tell us we can't boast because of the glory of this salvation. It doesn't give us room to boast. Doesn't mean God can't. Verse 10, God holds up the church before the world and he says, look what I'm working on. She's not finished, but she's getting there. And, and this, my workmanship, is going to be beautiful when I'm finished. We are his workmanship, our good works. Why do we do good works as Christians? Not so we can earn acceptance. That's totally contrary to Ephesians chapter 2. Our good works display his handiwork. He is working, as Philippians says, within us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Our good works display his handiwork. Our love for one another, which we'll talk about next week in Ephesians, displays his handiwork. Our pursuit of holiness, which we'll talk about in chapter 4, displays his handiwork. Our marriages, gospel-centered marriages and healthy Christian families, in chapter 5, displays his handiwork. Chapter 6 of Ephesians, our work our warfare and our witness displays his handiwork. There's a song that came out in 1995 by a group called Point of Grace. And I used to listen to this song. I would crank it all the way up in my car and listen to it over and over again and play it on repeat. And it was entitled, The House That Mercy Built. Ephesians 2 tells us that story. The house that mercy built built because God finds us dead in our trespasses and sins but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with him and now he's building something we are his workmanship we are the house that mercy is building that's your story that's my story how do you tell your story does it match the way God tells your story? Does it follow these same outlines? This is who I was. This is what I was living in. This is what I was giving myself to. This is what God did. I didn't deserve a scrap of it, but this is what he did and came barreling into my life. And this is who I am now by the grace of God. I almost titled this message from walking dead to workmanship because they're dead in their trespasses, but they're very much alive and they're walking according to the pleasures of the world, the walking dead to workmanship. We were dead to God. We got mercy. We are his workmanship. That's your story. If you're a believer in Christ, that's my story. It should animate a life of praise to God. I pray it has that effect on your soul today.